Germany's Green Party puts forward a candidate for chancellor for the first time in 40 years. A royal summit might be looming to decide the future of the monarchy. US President Joe Biden gives a little boost to the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games. And we speak to a pet detective investigating the rise in dog theft in the UK. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Monday the 19th of April and I'm Carlotta Ribello. I'm joined today by our regular Monday duo here in Studio One at Midori House in London. I'm joined by Monocle 24 senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco and on the line from London as well I have the dulcet tones of our editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck. Welcome both back to the show. Andrew, perhaps we should start by explaining to our listeners why your voice is coming remotely today. You've been a one of the lucky ones. You've been traveling. Telling me more about it. Well, it'd been many months since I'd uh, been to our other HQ in, uh, in Zurich and I hadn't seen our chairman and our editorial director for some months either. So last week I went because we have quite a few business things coming up that needed to be discussed and we'd been trying to do it on Zooms and things and you kind of realize the, the gaps in your knowledge when you're doing those things. So I went last week. Uh, and it's a complicated thing going to Switzerland these days. In the past, I used to get up early in the morning, go and see the team there and be back in the evening even. But now it's uh, five COVID tests to get there and back if you don't want to do a full eight days of quarantine when you return. So tomorrow morning I have my uh, my early release test, which uh, hopefully by the end of the day means that I'm I'm clear to leave the house. But then you still have to have another one three days later. You can't dodge the eight-day one as well. So in total, it would have been £600 for tests just to go and come back. And you lose some days. But I've tried to make the most of it and think, actually, this is a, a good moment to be fixing and thinking about some things while I'm at home. So it's not been too bad. But my God, the, the days of easy travel have certainly kind of vanished. Uh, it almost makes me feel nostalgic. I, I saw a photo that uh, you shared about a, from an airplane window and made me feel so nostalgic. I miss that view. Well, I feel like between you and Fernando, I'm living like the two sides of easing of lockdown. So you've been traveling and Fernando just got a haircut. Well, Fernando, was Josh happy? Josh is his hairdresser. He's been talking a lot about Josh lately. Well, absolutely. I told Josh <laughs> he was mentioned on, on the late edition last week as well, and he's been mentioning today. I mean, it is an emotional moment, and, and you know what? I, I think I became actually emotional talking to him. I was like, I say, Josh, you are essential, you know? Like, I was not looking, I mean, of course, I was looking forward to have a drink, but to have a haircut even more. Uh, and he gave me some new, n- new tips. He said that he likes the length of my hair, but of course, the Sides definitely need some some attention. So yeah, very happy Colotta today. The hard-hitting news here on the late edition. We'll keep you updated with Fernando's hairstyle throughout the next weeks and months. Fernando and Andrew, thank you both for joining me here on the late edition today. Well, let's head over to Germany now, where the Green Party has announced their candidate for Chancellor, Annalena Baerbock. It's the first time in the Greens' four-decade history that the party has put forward a candidate to run as Chancellor. Well, Anna Rosenberg is the head of Europe and UK at the consultancy Signum Global, and she's spoke to us about this on the briefing earlier today, just as the Greens made their announcement. 
as we speak, Baerbock has been announced as the leader of the Green, and she is now basically going to become Germany's most important and influential politician, female politician, after Merkel, which is actually quite surprising, given that we're talking about a 40-year-old new kid on the block that, you know, not many people have heard of before. She was very much, or is very much, a party insider. So she's worked uh, up uh, through, through the ranks over the past couple of years, very much focused on green politics and policies over the last few years. But she is now really going to be quite influential as we're heading into the elections, could potentially even become the next chancellor. That's not our base case. But nevertheless, she's going to shape how Germany will look like in a few months down the line. Anna Rosenberg there, speaking to us earlier on the briefing. Uh, Fernando, what are your thoughts in general on Annalena Verbach um, and the Green Party? Uh, because it's it's actually a good thing, I think, that the CDU has a bit of competition this time around and you know a new name uh, is entering the political sphere. I find it quite interesting and I was reading a, a bit more about Annalena. First of all, she's uh, very young. Uh, you know, she studied actually in London at the London School of Economics. And it's interesting, Carlotta, because you're right, because I think without the Green Party, the German election would be kind of a done deal. The CDU-CSU kind of coalition would definitely win. But, you know, who knows? I mean, the Greens, they are actually quite close if you look if you look at them at the polls. And I was talking to a German friend recently. I think the Green Party in Germany is different from all the Green Parties around the world because because they don't only deal with issues relating to the environment. I think, you know, they look at business, they look at women's rights. There are many other kind of... And, and, and you know what? Some some business in Germany, it's a very well-respected party. Uh, so I think that counts a lot uh, to them as well. They have a very long tradition to vote for the Green Party there in Germany. So, yeah, I find quite 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 exciting. And she does have some interesting things in her biography there. Uh, did you know she's a former trampoline champion as well? You know, that's... Uh, and, and and again, she, she apparently she likes uh, Merkel quite a lot. So it'd be interesting to have, you know, another kind of female chancellor. I mean, if they do win, I'm not saying they're going to win. I, I, you know, as Anna Rosenberg was saying, you know, they're still in second place. But, you know, they will have a very important role to play whatever the coalition is there at the final result. Uh, Andrew, hearing Fernando talk there about, you know, the, the impact the Greens in Germany might have on the political uh, landscape made me think about London. Um, I think particularly particularly the case of mayoral elections and local elections here in this country, where it seems like that is where the Greens have the biggest chance to actually shake things up and make some moves. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, we've traditionally had one Green MP who's uh, sat for Brighton. And elsewhere, at the more local level, you're right, that's that's where the Greens have managed to win seats. So it's been an odd... It's, you know, it's one of these strange things about the political system in the UK is where... At local levels, often you find politicians doing well who just can't get their parties up to kind of national stature. So people trust the, the Liberal Democrats, for example, or the, the Greens to manage their council, to make sure that their refuse is recycled, to make sure that their, their parks are well run, to make sure that their schools come up to scratch. But when it gets to, to national politics, they then kind of lose faith and they go with one of the big bear moths. So they go with the, 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 the Tories or they go, they go with Labour, for example. But, you know, everyone's waiting for this breakthrough moment for, for the Green Party. So the other problem for the Green Party is, you know, that uh, unlike in, say, Germany, where the, the Greens built up their following a long, long time ago, that they were a strong party decades ago. Uh, here in the UK, that many of the things that the Greens would champion uh, are quite easily picked off and stolen by the, the bigger parties. So, 
you know, arguably even the Tories have, have begun to snatch some of the kind of policies, or at least the the appearance of some of the policies that the Greens would champion. So, uh, coming out of Brexit, they're looking at you know a, a, a new deal for farmers that would that would see public good coming to the fore in, in how land is used, for example. So. Interesting, but we, we just don't have the kind of breakthrough. But you know, it's uh, it's it's fascinating to watch the, the, the German scene, especially as at the moment when all the other parties are kind of like can't agree on anything and tearing each other apart. That you have you know Annalena Baerbock come through as a candidate who seems to unite her party and unite her followers. And Andrew, staying with you and uh, looking at the UK, of course, one of the stories that dominated the coverage here over the weekend was the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. But even today, um, two days later, British newspapers all have headlines about the royal family and whether or not Harry and William are uh, friends again and what's going to happen. But interestingly, the Telegraph mentions that a royal summit is uh, looming and this is uh, being uh, organised by uh, Charles and by William um, following the death of Prince Philip and Harry and Meghan stepping down from royal duties. And they say that this is a summit, and I quote, that will decide the future of the monarchy over the next two generations. It just seems impossible that the royal family, you know, manages to stay out of the headlines these days. But is a rethink of the monarchy as an institution a bad thing? It actually might be uh, quite good to uh, look at where it fits in 2021 and looking ahead. First of all, we have to presume that people are willing to have a royal family. And at the moment, the majority of British people are willing to have a royal family. And even when you see you know, Scotland pushing for independence, they, 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 they seem to hold the monarch as, as part of that story as well. But the, the interesting thing is that I don't think this is coming you know, as a surprise. It's not just because of Harry and Meghan. And it's not even an unwilling conversation that they're entering into. What we understand is the likes of Prince Charles already believe that a slimmed-down monarchy is important for the institution to survive, you know, that people are less willing to see... Uh, dukes and odd princes on the periphery of the of the royal family being given money from the public purse or being given even the kind of the kind of credit and the kind of support that would have gone to any member of the royal family in the past so he would like to see a slim down royal family and i think that william probably after the ructions with his brother agrees with that and also you have the likes of prince andrew who i think everybody within the royal family would probably wish was was not a problem they had to deal with, with all the bad press that he's managed to garner. So I'm sure that there is going to be a kind of a leaner family. And I think that will move it more in the kind of presence of you have of a royal family in, for example, in the Nordic nations. But, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing because, you know, we're a contemporary country, you know, people have all the kind of access to every, all the things that would make you feel... You didn't need to hark back to the past. But oddly, I don't know whether it's as people get older, but you know, the past does matter to people. And this, this thread of history that is represented by this family, you know, if it's not it's not an unbroken thread, it's not it's not all purely British or anything like that, but there's something about that thread that people are very um, nervous about tugging and pulling out in case all sorts of things unravel. So uh, for now, I think the royal family are doing probably the correct thing. They're, they're thinking about how they function as an institution. And lastly, you know, I watched that the, the funeral at the weekend, and I thought it was a, uh, it was pretty extraordinary and a pretty a, a display of, of regal might and of ceremony, even when it was stripped back. But you know, and I have many questions about you know the, the publicity around all these stories. But you know, you do realise when you saw the all these men 
all dressed the same or walking behind the Duke of Edinburgh's uh, coffin, why somebody like Meghan Markle could have been a, a, a piece of inspirational addition to the family. It, yeah. So I, 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 I think they have some questions to think about how they represent themselves in the future. Uh, I watched the funeral as well, and it was a mix of, you know, wanting to witness history and, you know, journalistic curiosity. But it was just an amazing tribute and millions of people um, joined in to watch it. And, you know, I come from a country that doesn't have a monarchy, um, hasn't had one since 1910. So we only hear of these things from the past, but actually seeing um, the royal might in full display was quite extraordinary. Fernando, what are your thoughts on this? Because we've spoken about this in the past and, You know, maybe it's a question of generations as well and a generational difference. So I'm curious about your take. I, I did notice that that generational uh, thing a lot. And, and I do respect, you know, for a lot of British people still, the royal family is incredibly important. I remember the day that, you know, the Duke of Edinburgh died. Uh, you know, the mother of my partner called him straight away. She wanted to have a proper conversation. And I do think she was genuinely very sad uh, about his death. For example, I've got to be honest, you know, I did follow a little bit kind of the funeral. It did didn't touch me personally, but I have to respect. Again, I spoke even to my grandmother in Brazil. She was like, oh my God, the, the, the prince died. What, what's, what's going to happen with the UK? So there's a lot of interest with the royal family. And I think even outside uh, the United Kingdom. So it was very, very interesting to observe. I do think the UK is quite divided. And now, I, you know, as Andrew said, the majority still supports somehow the monarchy. But I think this number is dwindling. But we, we, we do have to respect. A lot of people still, um, you know, hold them very dear to their heart. And it's, uh, as you said, uh, the, the, an institution that's recognized all over the world. And because it has been that figure of stability and has been there for such a long time, as Andrew was describing, uh, everyone um, pretty much knows about it. My mum did ask me if people were wearing black in London on Saturday. It's like, no, It's like, no uh, we don't, it doesn't go that far. She's like, oh, okay, I thought it would be more respectful. So that was what my <laughs> mum said about uh, the, the royal family. Let's, let's move on. It's for the best. And look at Japan now. Uh, the Tokyo Olympic Games seem to have been given a slight boost by maybe an unlikely character, the US President Joe Biden, during his meeting with Japan's Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga at the White House, where Biden backed plans to hold a safe and secure Games. Well, let's hear more from Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief and Asia Editor Fiona Wilson, who told us how this was being covered back home. It depends on which paper you're looking at. I mean, there have been some extremely critical editorials, say in the Asahi, which is slightly left of centre paper, saying not the time to have it. And they've also been looking quite closely at these contracts that Tokyo has. Is the IOC putting pressure on Tokyo? Is it really difficult for the Japanese government to cancel? So they've been focusing on that a bit this week. And of course, even the Nikkei has been quite critical. I mean, I know you, you will be looking at Nikkei Asia, which is Nikkei's English language wing. And, and they've been putting out some very critical editorials, surprisingly critical, I felt, talking about the zombie Olympics. And yeah, it, it's pretty tough. I think the Japanese government is not feeling the, uh, the support of the Japanese media on this. That was Monocle's Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. Uh, Andrew, now I know you've been speaking to a few people at the IOC. This is for a, an upcoming series on the urbanists that we've been planning. So I want to hear what you make of this story, um, including from your recent conversations. Well, not just from my recent conversations, but, you know, 
Fiona's right. I, I'm sure there is pressure on on Tokyo to go ahead with the games. You know, the the IOC awarded a contract. It wants to see the the, the contract honoured in some format. Uh, but I, uh, the feeling I get from speaking to people over the past week, and you and me, Carlotta, you know, we've we've been doing this program about the games and about its impact on Tokyo, is that there is actually a surprising amount of deftness and nimbleness around the games that people have had to all sorts of things on hold over the past year and rethink what they mean. And, you know, it's not going to be a, 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 a games where tens of thousands of people fly into the city to, to watch the games from all around the world. We know that isn't going to happen. They've got to be incredibly COVID secure. They've got to do the, the right thing. But I come back to this same thing again, is, is when, when you think about all of these games... The resistance in the city is is incredibly high in the run up to the games. It feels like a, an onerous thing to have. It feels like a, a waste of money. But when it happens, there always seems to be this switch that happens that, that people suddenly get behind it. Now you saw here in London. You know, I remember in, in just a couple of weeks before the game, people saying, "Oh God, I can't be bothered with this thing. It's what a nightmare. It's it's you know just going to be disruption of traffic, and I can't believe that they're going to." kind of close down parts of central London. Now we, we live in a time when most of London has been closed down for a year and people haven't complained about that. But anyway, they 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 didn't get on board with it. And then suddenly there's something happened in the days in the running about run up to the games and suddenly people are scrambling to get tickets. They wanted to go. And they went and they felt part of something. And oddly this this chimes a little bit with the, the, what you're saying about the, the, the Duke of Edinburgh because there are national moments, there are international moments where sometimes you just want to feel part of something. So I would say that what Fiona you know, is seeing on the, on the local level, there is another story here, which is how people around the world will react. And you know, we've had such a kind of strange year in these you know, football matches with nobody in the stadium and, and delayed uh, events all around the world. If this goes ahead and we see a display of extraordinary achievement from people who have managed to train during this period and, and get to the peak of their performance and who do something to instill national pride in hundreds of countries around the world, then I think it's worthwhile. Then I think it will be a good thing. And I think it will be an oddly emotional and powerful coming together of the world that's all lived this same story of COVID. Everyone's gone through it and it's been brutal and denting. So to have something that's a little bit magical, I think it's a good thing. And, you know, to follow up what Andrew said, I mean, I think if the Olympics go ahead and everything goes right, it's a symbol of global unity. You know, I adore the Olympics. I think so many people were kind of missing. I think everybody will be so happy if it happens. I know that we can't travel there. There'll be a lot of restrictions. And and again, I wouldn't worry too much about the pressure from the media because as Andrew said, it happened in London. It happened in Rio de Janeiro. Remember, there was a lot of kind of pessimism, you know, saying, oh, you know, the lake, what they're going to do is quite dirty and no problems with city violence. But in the end, when the Olympics started, all Brazilians were very happy, at least during those three weeks. So I cannot wait, actually, to watch the Olympics later on. Well, finally today, the theft of the world's largest rabbit, a giant continental rabbit named Darius, from his owner's home in the English Midlands last week, has put the issue of animal thefts back in the spotlight. Well, we spoke to Colin Butcher, a pet detective, who told us about dog theft in the UK and why it's on the rise. The big attraction of stealing very young puppies is... The thieves try to target 
these young dogs before they're microchipped and it's virtually impossible to identify them before they're microchipped. Once they've got those dogs, they'll move them on quickly. There are a lot of organizations that will then microchip the dogs. And of course, you're effectively giving that puppy a new identity. And then they're sold on straight away to unsuspecting buyers who assume because the puppy's microchipped, it's come from a legitimate source. And you can hear the full report with our pet detective on the latest edition of The Globalist. Just head over to monocle.com. Well, Andrew, I guess I'll start with you because I want to know if you're ever fearful when you're taking Macy out on walks. Uh, fearful? Uh, uh, no, but there, there are things I, I would never do. So I'm, I, you know, I, I can never believe it when you walk past a supermarket and somebody has tied their dog up outside while they nip in to get some milk. I would never do that in, in a million years. I would never even leave the, the, the dog out of my sight. You know, I, I'm, I'm always cautious about those things. And you know, I've seen too many signs in parks and things saying that you know, a dog has gone missing. And it's, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, and, you know people, the, 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 the story about the world's biggest rabbit being stolen, you know, it, was, it was almost presented as a comical thing. But if you're the owner of an animal that gets stolen, it's, it's kind of devastating. And it's one of those things that you must go through your mind again and again and again every single day after that. You know, to lose an animal in that way would be awful. There are gangs doing it here in the UK, it, people snatching dogs uh, in the park people you know, breaking into people's homes to steal puppies. And it's, it's a really awful thing, you know, to be blunt. If, you know, you know, you, I, I, I think it's, a, it's a, a terrible crime and I think the, the punishment for it should be severe. Well, because the issue lies a lot on the fact that it's still seen as, pets are still seen as property within the law, so the crime cannot be punished as it should, as Andrew was mentioning there. Fernando, you were nodding along, but you also, right before we started the show, told me how this is also a huge issue in Brazil as well. No, it was. And I was reading, of course, you know, the story here in the UK is very dramatic. And I was looking that in Brazil, since the beginning of the pandemic, the number kind of of dog napping, as they, as they call dog thefts, increased so much. Uh, and, and those gangs, they're going for specific kind of breeds. For example, I, I saw that in Brazil, uh, she eats sus and, and pugs, you know, because they, they, they have, you know, a lot of value uh, into them. So yeah, it is a very tragic story. And, you know, I actually had, had an experience as well. When I was younger, we had a Dalmatian and, and it, was, it was literally dog napped or whatever you call. So, I mean, these things always existed. And, and, and I agree with Andrew. I mean, the punishment should be severe because it, it, it's a loss for, you know, it's, it's a very sad thing. And it is happening. I think it's a trend that is happening all around the world. I mean, we saw what happened in the United States with the Lady Gaga dogs, which was a big story at the time as well. But it's just one among so many others as well. Well, Fernando and Andrew, thank you very much for joining me here on The Late Edition. I'm afraid that's all we have time on today's programme. And a big thank you as well to our studio managers, Steph Chungo and Sam MP. I'm Carlotta Rubello here in London. The Late Edition is back at the same time tomorrow. 